This is Constructed. I'm Miranda Schiller. What's a representative image of London? There's the ever-growing skyline, some of the world's most iconic buildings. And then there are the rows and rows and rows and rows of semi-detached houses sprawling across never-ending suburbs, repeating themselves over and over again. It's pretty remarkable for a city of this size to have its housing so spread out. If you live in one of these houses, it's very comfortable. Chances are you have a garden. Chances are you have the whole house to yourself and your family or housemates. And chances are you spend quite a lot of time traveling on trains. Which is the whole reason why houses were built in this way in the 1930s, when the Metropolitan Railway Company was expanding its network. They had to buy the land to build the stations, and so after doing this for about 20 years, they had the idea that they could, if they're buying the land, why don't they develop the land for housing also, because the most reliable source of income for them will be from season tickets. This is Simon Murphy, curator at the London Transport Museum. It's a great interactive museum with lots of sound effects, so apologies for the background noise. The railway company needed season tickets as a reliable source of income, and this is why they promoted life in the suburbs, where they sold houses for low prices. To be clear, they did not invent the semi-detached house. Those had been built in large numbers in the Victorian era. But they were almost never owner-occupied. Yes, until then, the vast majority did not live in their own property, but rented from private landlords. The, you know, the idea of having you know, security in, in the suburbs was kind of a new idea, because most people rented at that time, and, and still you know, it didn't change everything, but it was like a, a way of promoting a you know, particular lifestyle of you know, moving out and owning your own home. And they were very effective in promoting it. In 1915, 100 years ago, they first issued a, a guidebook called Metroland, and the Metroland booklet had a description of each area, and you know, with a, a nice picture of the countryside, saying move to move here, move here, move here, and the rest of the booklet was all made up of estate agents' adverts. It was aimed at the new middle class, at those who could not afford to live in the West End, but were rich enough not to have to live in the city slums. Development soared in the 1930s. From the 1950s, formerly rented Victorian terraced houses were sold. For the next decades, and maybe even still today, owning your own house in the suburbs became the embodiment of achievement of having arrived. But this version of modern life was a life divided in two. Backwards, old-fashioned, country-style living on the one side, with the modern, buzzing city on the other side. But ever-repeating rows of the same houses are not the countryside. And spending a big part of your free time on trains or waiting for trains is not exciting and modern. At least not after trains had stopped being something exciting and modern. So after a while, this divide became the embodiment of frustration, boredom and discontent. Back in the 1930s, however, some people had a completely different vision for the future of housing. I can see all the way through from our communal garden to the pub across the street, the trees in the park opposite, and it really makes you feel like you're almost part of the landscape. This is Claire Benny, development advisor at the Peabody Trust, although here she is talking to me in her private capacity as an expert on Art Deco housing estates from the 1930s. 
And actually that's another really key feature of 1930s estates is the wonderful landscapes they sit in. It's almost like the buildings are all sitting in a park and you're just floating in your flat in this wonderful parkscape. The light is absolutely incredible, as you'll know, sitting in your home. This one is called Dorchester Court in Hernhill, where I lived for a few months. It does feel completely different to living in a semi-detached. I instantly felt modern and urban and futuristic. And there was the community of residents. I believe that quite a lot of the streets in the area do have communities, but I don't believe that it's as good as the community here because we used to have so many people visit us when we had small children and everybody said, oh, what a fantastic community there is here. This was one of my neighbours who didn't want to be named. You can lie out there in the summer with the children and you would just get to know everybody. I don't think there's another place like that. You can't lie out in the street on the pavement and get to know everybody who's coming home. But I would, with the children, lay out on a blanket and have their tea out on a blanket and everybody coming home from work, you would just get to know. The fantastic landscapes that exist, I think, really help to draw people together. And the minute you've got a communal garden, you're able to see people in it and join them. And I think that really helps. Yes, the community aspect is built into the architecture of these estates. But a community can only function if people are allowed to stay around for a while. Some tenants in Dorchester Court have lived there for decades, but lately more and more have had to move out because of extremely rapid rent increases. Some have had their tenancy terminated on the premise of repairs having to be carried out, which were then not done, but the flat immediately rented out at a higher price instead. The only work I've seen being done on the buildings is to put pipes in for new central heating systems. The building then became Grade 2 listed and then seven or eight years later the pipes came out again. A parquet floor's been put down in the reception area of Block 8, but they've never replaced the skirting boards, they've never replaced the grids that go over the radiators. I don't know. They've had one or two little parts where the paint was just literally peeling off the walls in huge rolls. Recently, they repainted that bit, but they didn't repaint the whole hall. The windows are all cracking. Within four months of moving in, they sent me a section 21, which said that after six months, they were breaking my contract. This is Ravi, another resident. So even though I had a short hold assured tenancy for one year, they said that they were terminating it at the six month mark and they would like me to get out and that they were giving me two months notice to do that. So I said, why am I needing to move out? And they said, well, we need to do structural repairs to the flat. So I pushed them on, well, what, what's the nature of the repairs? It turns out there were no repairs planned. Ravi is fighting against the termination of his contract. But under Section 21 of the Housing Act, a landlord doesn't need to give a reason. Section 21 is the landlord has to give no reason for eviction. This is Simon Gordon, policy advisor at the Residential Landlords Association. Section 21 is the holy grail for private landlords. If you tamper with Section 21, you run the risk that some landlords will simply say, I've had enough. And if the private rented sector shrinks, there will be people that will be homeless. They will have nowhere to go. Simon Gordon does not budge on the importance of Section 21. The reasons he named for why a landlord might want to have a tenant evicted are... It's because of non-payment of rent, because the place has been trashed. They may need the property for themselves. They may need the property for a member of their family. They may wish to sell the property. I did ask him if he didn't think those reasons could be incorporated in a new rule so that evictions are possible if any of those reasons are given, but not without a reason. 
But he artfully avoided the question. The problem for tenants in a place like Dorchester Court is, the landlord is not a person. None of these reasons ever apply. It's a company. What the overwhelming majority of landlords want is contented, even happy, tenants who stay. What both landlords and tenants want is confidence. Landlords want to be confident that their tenants are good, look after the property, pay the rent regularly. Tenants want to know the property is decent, they're paying a, uh, a rent that they can afford, and they have a good relationship with the landlord. While what Simon Gordon says is probably true for private landlords, a company whose sole purpose is to rent out property does not have to care about a good relationship or having tenants who stay. The goal of the company is to earn money, and if there's more money to be made, and if that means a tenant has to move out, then why keep him? It doesn't make economic sense. Landlords are businesses, they're not a social service. If landlords can see that they can rent for more money, some will say no. I've got good tenants, I'm happy. But Mr and Mrs Bloggs have been with me for 12, 15, 20 years. I'm, I'm happy. But there will be some landlords who will think, I'm a business, I've got mortgages to pay, I can get more money for this. But the answer to that is to provide more accommodation. More accommodation is being built. And more is being built to let. To be let not by Mr. and Mrs. Blocks, but by corporations, just like the estates in the 1930s were. Originally, every home in these 30s estates would have been rented, which is interesting because we don't build many homes for rent anymore, except that we're just starting again now because no one can afford to buy homes anymore. On my particular estate, people do now own their homes. They were originally all for rent, and they were all for slightly higher rents than the... Uh, subsidised rent, if you like, so they were mostly rented by civil servants, doctors, lawyers, architects and so on. A lot of people are renting out of choice and then later on they will buy. So the sector is not simply loads and loads of poor people who have nowhere else to go. It is now middle-class professional families who rent because they have made the financial decision that they will rent for a number of years. One of the reasons that I never left when I had children and went to buy somewhere was because I wanted my children to grow up playing with other children and they could play safely out there because we could see them from our balconies. It's certainly not like being on a main road. Private renting is on the rise and actually what's also on the rise is developers who are arriving, especially from other countries like America, and showing us how to build exactly what we built in the 30s ourselves. Really efficient, interesting, stacked sets of flats which are perhaps a little bit smaller, although the one we're sitting in seems enormous. And the other feature of private rented sector homes in the 21st century is communal areas, laundries, restaurants, other spaces you can use. So you live in the whole building as it were, not just your home. But how high are the rents? Will they be affordable enough to make this kind of living a real trend? So much that it becomes an aspiration? Community over property? It almost sounds too idealistic. But then, in the 1930s, owning your own house would have sounded improbable to most middle-income families in London. Things that seem deeply ingrained in a culture can change surprisingly quickly. And as the railway-induced suburban boom of the 30s shows, these changes are rarely intentional. They wanted to extend the line so they could sell more tickets. They were not thinking of high concepts of design, improving life and everything, but that would all happen as a result. 
More about how the development of transport has shaped the city can be seen in the London Transport Museum. For more information on all of London's 1930s estates, go to Claire Benny's website londondecoflats.com. You can find links and pictures and more information on constructedpodcast.com. This was Constructed. Thank you for listening.